Amen. We come this morning to the reading of God's word from John chapter 4. As we are making our way through this great fourth gospel, we have most recently seen Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, that uh, unconverted ruler of the Jews, the teacher of Israel. And now we're going to see Jesus' interaction with somebody very different from Nicodemus, a Samaritan woman, a presumably notoriously sinful Gentile, and the stark contrast, and yet the same Savior doing the same thing, doing that spiritual surgery in the hearts of those he came to seek and save. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Jesus is preeminently a spiritual apothecary. He is a physician of souls. And this is, by the way, just so you know, the longest uh, interaction that we have recorded in Scripture between Jesus and an individual. And hopefully this will not be the longest sermon you ever hear me preach. (laughs) So I'm actually going to shorten this passage for the sake of time, and we're just going to look at 30 verses And we're going to try to do a big bird's eye view this morning as we look at uh, John chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 30. And this is God's word. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Almost certainly it was noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now are with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvations of the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a very famous sermon in church history by the 19th century Scottish theologian, pastor, scientist, astronomer, statesman, Thomas Chalmers. It sounds like that was exhausting, but he was very gifted. And, and he preached a famous sermon called uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what Chalmers says in this sermon is that everybody has desires. We are all living in a constant state of desire and that it's impossible for you to ever stop desiring at any single second in your life. Go ahead and try. I'm desiring for you to try. So, so everybody's got desires all the time, and Chalmers says when, when a boy is a boy, he has boyish desires. I was really into baseball cards, and then they were worth nothing, and now they're worth a lot again, and I don't care. Because I was a boy, and I had boyish desires, and then when, when he becomes a teenager, Chalmers says he advances to, to those desires that fit that age and stage, and then when he becomes a man, he desires money and power, essentially. Pleasure, power, provision. And, and your, your desires are always changing, but you're never ceasing to desire. And because we're sinful, our desires are almost always bent towards sin, and by nature they will always be bent towards sin, whether it's just selfish, selfish desires for good things or uh, whether they are selfish desires for evil things. They, they are always sinful. And Chalmers says the only way to get your desires drawn off of what is sinful is to have a better object to allure you. This is super important for the Christian life. Chalmers said this, The present desire is not to be gotten rid of simply by destroying it. It must be by substituting another desire. And another line of habit, of exertion in its place, and the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object is not by turning it away upon vacancy, but by presenting to it another object still more alluring. Now what Chalmers is saying is Jesus, when he becomes the object of our spiritual desires, draws our hearts off of those desires that detract from him. That he is the infinite object of allurement. And when we finally come to see our need for him, and this happens constantly in our life, we need this, that that's how we are drawn off of those selfish and sinful desires, not by just trying to stop doing those things. Now, there is no better example of that principle than the woman at the well. As I noted already, uh, there's a stark contrast. Um, you know, Nicodemus, and, and I'm going to read to you James Boyce here, Nicodemus was the ruler of the Jews. This was a simple Samaritan woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. 
She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She is nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night. She came at noon to protect her reputation. Nicodemus came seeking. The woman was sought by Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? Strong contrast. And yet Jesus is teaching us that he is the savior of the world. If there is any example of John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If there is ever an example of what that looks like, God loving the world and saving the world through his son, it is the woman at the well. She is the most unlikely of candidates next to the thief on the cross. She, is, she doesn't even know the scriptures the way you probably knew the scriptures as a child. Now, I want us to consider three things this morning. I want us to consider first the approach of Jesus, then I want us to consider the offer of Jesus, and then I want us to consider the discovery of this woman, the approach, the offer, and the discovery. We'll notice uh, John has told us that Jesus is now moving from Judea to Galilee, and and there's a little line, notice this in in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 4, Uh, And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, scholars are super debated over this. Um, Most of the older writers, theologians, and I think that they're right, say that there is, is in in these words, more than just a geographical necessity. They're going to say he had to go through Samaria because God determined to save the woman at the well. This is the sovereignty of God's providence to redeem a sinner. We're going to talk about that in a second. Others say, well, he had to go because Samaria lay through these two areas, and that's true, but almost all Jews would have gone out of their way to avoid Samaria because they hated the Samaritans so much. Just like they passed by on the other side of the road when they saw a guy bleeding, but the Samaritan came over. The contrast, the contrast between the two groups is stark. Um, Samaritans were, they were sort of half-bred Jews, They had come back from the captivity. They had intermarried with the nations. They lived in what today is the West Bank. That's what area this is. And and they had their own sort of syncretized religion. They they were partially Jewish and partially mystical, and, and they were hated and despised by the Jews for obvious reasons. And there was ethnic hostility between these two groups. And so it's actually quite remarkable that Jesus goes out of his way to go to Samaria And I think when John says he had to go, that he understands that his father has sent him on a mission and that this woman is going to be part of that mission. Now, that might have been by revelation to him. It might have been uh, some, some other way that he knew, by intuition. But the Savior is coming to this well by divine appointment. Now, I, I would argue, notice verse 23, and, and people oftentimes miss this. They so often focus on God is, is wanting people to worship him in spirit and truth, and, and they'll do 20 sermons on worship and how we ought to worship, and, and yet they miss this. Notice what Jesus says. He says, for the Father is seeking. Don't miss that. The Father is seeking. See, God the Father was seeking this woman. We love the words of that hymn, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. And yet, 
perhaps we don't think about God the Father sought us when we were strangers. And the Father sent the Son on a mission, and he was going to save this woman. Now, Jesus is tired. Jesus is thirsty. He is not just fully God. He is fully man, and he was subject to all the weaknesses of life in this fallen world except for sin himself. And, and I don't think Jesus is approaching this woman sort of trying to finagle evangelism with her. I think he really wants a drink. And he, he asks her when she comes, he's there by necessity and he's thirsty and he sees that she's come and it's hot, no doubt, at noon in, in that Palestinian heat. And he says, give me a drink. And that begins his approach to overcoming boundaries with this woman. Now, this is really quite remarkable. Jesus is going to overcome four boundaries. James Boyce points out three of these, but he's going to overcome four boundaries in witnessing to this woman. First of all, he's going to overcome the ethnic boundary. We've talked about that. There was huge racial ethnic discrimination between Jews and Samaritans. Jesus is going to cross that because John tells us Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's the Jew of all Jews. Here is the son of Abraham. Here is the last man of Israel. That's who Jesus is, the true Israel. And he is going to cross over that ethnic discrimination, and he is going to engage this woman. So he crosses the ethnic boundary, and then, and then he, he goes further. He, notice, he crosses in this passage um, uh, the uh, gender boundary. This is super important for our day. He crosses the racial or ethnic boundary. He crosses the gender boundary because in that day, religious leaders in Israel did not talk to women. Oftentimes, they wouldn't even talk to their, their, their wives about uh, theological subjects unless there was some special time in the home, if they were out in public. There, there was huge disparity. One of the things Jesus did was he often um, taught, engaged, and honored those women that were supporting him, that were with him, that came to him. He exalted the dignity of women, and here, even though this woman is notoriously sinful, he is going to treat her with dignity. So he crosses the ethnic boundary, he crosses the gender boundary, he crosses the sexual boundary. He knows this woman is immoral. He will tell her that, and yet it doesn't keep him from engaging her. Too often, we look at others who sin in ways different than us, and we think that they are a threat to us, and so we avoid them and forget that we're sinners. Now, here's the sinless son of God, but he is engaging a woman who is sexually immoral. Isn't that interesting? Ethnic, gender, sexual in his approach to this woman in bringing the gospel to her, and then religious. She is essentially in a cult. I was trying to think of an illustration. I couldn't. It'd be a little bit like you witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness. It'd probably be the best analogy. Um, by the way, whenever Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, you can tell them that you're Jehovah's Witness, and they'll say, what? And you can say, yeah, Jesus is Jehovah. So, Jehovah Jesus is here witnessing to this woman who worships a false god. He says, you don't know what you worship. We know what we worship. Salvation's of the Jews. But see what he's doing, and Boyce's point is so good. He is crossing all these boundaries. Nothing is going to stop Jesus from saving those he came into the world to save. 
Isn't that reassuring? If this story teaches us anything, it's that nothing will stop the Savior from saving the people he came into the world to save. It doesn't matter how far gone they are. Boyce will actually say that that Nicodemus teaches us that no matter how far people advance, they're not beyond their need for salvation, no matter how far they advance religiously, and no matter how low they go, the woman at the well teaches us that no one can go so low that they're beyond salvation. Isn't that awesome? Um... And so there is an approach to this woman by the Savior. Now, you probably know this account very well. Jesus is wanting to get to the offer, and he says in verse 10, because she's dismissive of him, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is going to turn this around. He's always using double entendres. He's always using one thing that people think means this, but he's saying, listen, I'm going to turn that around and show you what I mean spiritually. And, and he's going to use his thirst and the experience of that thirst as an analogy for what um, all of us by nature are doing spiritually and thirsting after um, things that can never satisfy, desires that can never fulfill us. Um, by the way, I heard a story years ago Carl Robbins up at Woodruff Road had said when he was in Las Vegas, he had heard uh, Keith Richards on the radio. And the interviewer was saying, man, you've lived such an awesome life. You've partied so much and had so many women. And just tell me, like, how awesome has your life been? And Richards was like, apparently said, I mean, don't you get it? I wrote the song, Can't Get No Satisfaction. Tom Brady wins five rings and says, there's got to be more. Um, Jesus knows that everybody's thirsting. Even people that don't realize they're thirsting are thirsting. And they're drinking from something. And so he says, if you knew who it was who spoke to you, if you knew who I was, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew what God had come to do, if you know why I'm in the world, if you know why God has come into the world to save sinners, you would have just asked me, By the way, isn't this interesting? It's just like the serpent on the pole. All you have to do is look. All you have to do is ask. He doesn't say you would have worked for it. Remember, Isaiah says, Come without money, without price. Buy milk and wine. Let your soul uh, eat and be satisfied, right? You You can't purchase it. It's the gift of God, and all you have to do is ask. It's the free offer of the gospel. Now, this woman doesn't understand the offer. She just keeps thinking on the earthly plane like Nicodemus. She, she first goes from really um, being disinterested. And, and I want to say this cautiously and reverently. Here's a woman who knew how to deal with men, and she's not interested in this man. Now that might be because Isaiah said there was no form or beauty that we should behold him. There's nothing about Jesus if you saw him that would have drawn you to him. He, he wasn't like a Jewish Brad Pitt. I don't even know if Brad Pitt's a thing anymore, but anyway, there you go. Um, but there, there was nothing. In fact, by her dismissal of him, he probably shows he wasn't an attractive guy. And, and she doesn't want anything to do with him. Now he's engaging her. Now he's crossing those boundaries. Now he's offering her what he came into the world to give. And, and now... 
she, she just thinks on the earthly plane, well, I mean, I guess if you can give me water so I don't have to come here, that, that would be great. And, and, um, and he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman again says, give me this water so I don't have to come here. Now, I think we're meant to take away from this that by nature no one can understand the spiritual things of God. And that even when Jesus is speaking very clearly about the gospel, by nature all people will only hear earthly, natural things because they're consumed with what is earthly and natural. Now, we need to remember that when we witness, you know. Um, don't get discouraged when people are disinterested. Don't get discouraged when they're distracted and don't understand. That's par for the course in this world. It was true of us at some point in our life, and it is true of everybody around us. Now, now things, things kind of get tense. Remember, Jesus is still offering her the gospel, but, but he's gonna, now he's going to go to the very epicenter of her need, and he's going to put his finger in the wound of her life. Um, he's going to uncover her spiritually to, to help her see what she is. And, and so he says, and remember, she's there. She's not with a caravan of women. She's coming at a very unusual time because women would have come very early or very late together. She's by herself. She's a woman of ill repute. She do doesn't have a lot of friends. She's probably not respected in the community. And, and Jesus knows why. And so he says, go call your husband. And things are about to get really tense for this woman. Some people try to downplay this, and they said, well, this woman was divorced five times. The men had put her away, and she was really a victim. I really don't think that's what this is saying. This is a woman who has bounced man to man to man to man to man. And the man she's with now living with is not even her husband. Now, he may be married to someone else, or they may just be living together, but she is, she is trying to satisfy herself with men. That's the point. She is... The wells she is drinking of are the wells of intimacy and sexual pleasure with men. And Jesus knows that, and so she says, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus uncovers her. No, you've had five husbands, and the one that you have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Um, if, if we're ever going to see our need for the Lord Jesus Christ and the living waters that he freely offers by his grace, we have to have him uncover our sinful hearts. That's the point. I and you have got to have our sinful hearts uncovered. Now, you may be the most dignified person in this room, or you may be the most rebellious person in this room. It doesn't matter. Rebellion takes all kinds of shapes and forms. You could be like Nicodemus. You could be like the woman at the well. Both needed their hearts uncovered. We need our self-righteousness uncovered, we need our lawlessness uncovered. And Jesus is going to uncover, no matter how painful it is to us, he's going to uncover that so that we'll see our need for him and so that we'll, we'll, we'll come to the living waters. Um, conviction of sin is a good thing in the Christian life. As much as we don't like it, we need it.
As much as we say, that's right, we still don't like it. Um, and yet Jesus is doing that to this woman so that he can save this woman. Now, um, this woman wants to change the subject. She's very uncomfortable. And instead of, instead of at that point saying, you know, I need what you've come to give, she, she changes the subject and she, she essentially says, well, let, let's talk about worship. Never a good idea to get in a discussion with Jesus about worship when you want to detract from Jesus. <laughs> and, and she essentially says to him, I, I've had this happen. I don't know if you have. She essentially says, um, while you're witnessing, well, why are there, aren't there so many denominations? Why are there so many religions in the world if, if what you're saying is true? She's like, well, you know, you Jews, and I know you seem like a prophet, but our fathers worshipped here, but you guys say in Jerusalem's the place to worship, and she wants to just, she just wants to bandy about, you know, debate about just religious differences, and, and Jesus is not going to let her go. He essentially says, listen, it's not, this mountain, it's not going to be in Jerusalem. The earthly is passing away. I've come. I've brought the heavenly. There, there's going to be a new community of believers who worship God in spirit and truth all over the face of the earth. She is a Gentile. She's going to be part of that. And, and he is saying, there's something bigger and better than you could ever imagine in your wildest dreams that I've brought into this world. That, that is coming and is now here because I'm here. And then she changes the subject again. Notice verse 25. Now she sort of wants to just end the conversation. And she says, I, kn I know that Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he'll tell us everything. So she's, she's saying, you know, one day somebody's going to sort it all out. I've heard people say that, too. One day it'll just get all sorted out. Well, it will, but it's not going to be how people want it to be sorted out. Um, and here is the Messiah. Think about this. She is talking to the long-awaited Messiah. Isn't that amazing? The Jews waited for the Messiah for thousands of years. And now this poor, sinful, um, socially outcast Gentile woman is sitting face to face with the Messiah and doesn't know it. And for the only time that we have recorded in the Gospels, Jesus explicitly says, I who speak to you, am the Messiah. I am he. I was thinking about this. You know, we often say things like, man, that guy's really messed up. He has a Messiah complex. Because a lot of people do. There, there is one person who could have a Messiah complex, and rightfully so, and it's Jesus. There's one person who, who could say, I'm, I'm the Messiah, because he is the Christ. There's only one. Um, now, that is so much a part of the offer. You've got to know who Jesus is if you're ever going to come to him. You've got to see who he is if you're ever going to trust in him. You've got to know about both his person and his work if you're ever going to get living water from him. He is revealing, isn't he, in the offer. He is getting to the point where he's saying, stop detracting from me. It's about me. She, remember, she wants to move around and dodge and evade, and he's saying, no, 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 it's about me.
Keep your eyes on me. Um, now, I want us to briefly consider the discovery. Um, notice verse 28. This is one of the most amazing things in the Bible. How do we know that this woman found the living water? Because she left her water pot. That water pot was a symbol of her life. It was empty. That water pot she had to bring over and over and over again to get water. That was what she was consumed with throughout this conversation. It represented her life. And John knows that she was converted because John would have come back and Jesus would have pointed out the water pot when he was telling them. John saw it as an eyewitness. But that water pot was a symbol of her sinful life. It's a symbol of our lives. Do you remember in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where the Lord says, My people have committed two great sins. They have rejected me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's, that's what this woman had done. That's what we do every time we sin. We, we, are, we are trying to satisfy ourselves with sand. And this woman, this pot, was, was representative of this woman's life, and she left the water pot because she found the living waters. Something happened. She, she discovered who Christ was. She's, she is converted. And we know that because she's going to go and tell the men of the city. Now, why is that important? Well, this woman had been trying to satisfy herself with men. Isn't that interesting? John tells us she went and told the men of the city. Maybe she went back to every man she had been with. We found, found the Messiah. I found the Christ. He told me all things that I ever did. Actually, he only told her one thing she ever did. But it was as if she knew that he knew everything about her. When we come to discover Christ, we put the water pots down. We tell others about him because we feel like he knows everything about us because we know he knows everything about us. And we know that he is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. Now, it's interesting. Um, all of this is happening at Jacob's well. And wells in the Old Testament were places where God revealed things and You'll remember Isaac um, got his bride, Rebecca, at a well. And um, no doubt Jesus reflected on those truths about Jacob and um, Isaac and Rebecca and about the patriarchs and God's revelation at these wells and bringing spouses to the patriarchs. And remember, Sinclair Ferguson makes this point. It's, it's astonishing. He said Jesus' mind would have been filled at times with the fact that no, no Jacob, humanly speaking, no Jesus. No Rebecca, humanly speaking, no Jesus. No Isaac, no Rachel, no Leah, no, no Leah, no Jesus. He would have remembered those things. And remember, John tells us, he tells us in the last chapter that Jesus is the bridegroom. Here's what you have. You have the heavenly bridegroom seeking a bride for himself at Jacob's well. And he's going to have his bride. 
and he's going to give his bride living waters so that they will never thirst, so that they will be satisfied for all of eternity. And how is he going to do that? At the end of John's gospel, there is one other place where thirst is mentioned. And it's when Jesus hangs on the cross and he cries out, I thirst. Don't miss this. How does Jesus take away your thirst for spirit for sin? He takes it on himself and he thirsts under the infinite wrath of God. Remember the rich man in hell and he begged that, that Lazarus would just take one of his crusty fingers and let him just have a dip of water to cool his thirst? That's what's happening to Jesus on the cross for our sin. He is thirsting under the wrath of God because of my sinful thirsting and drinking and your sinful thirsting and drinking. Isn't that amazing? He's going to thirst so that you'll never thirst. He's going to go through the parched wrath of God so that you will drink the life-giving waters for all eternity. And there's a picture, and I'm going to leave you with this. There's a picture in the book of Revelation where the Lamb who suffered and thirsted for us is said to lead his people besides rivers of living water for all eternity. Horatius Bonar, who I mentioned last week, wrote these great words in his hymn, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. He said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, behold, I freely give the living water. Thirsty ones stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched. My soul revived. And now... I live in him. I hope that you will be eager today, even if you have come to Jesus um, over and over, that you will go to him for more of the living waters. There's always more. There's an infinite fountain. There's no bottom. The woman said, the well's deep. This well is really deep. There is no end to what Christ has for you if you will come to him and cry out for him. Maybe you've never done that. Um, he wants to uncover your need this morning. Maybe you've done it. He wants to uncover our need this morning. Very simple application. He offers us the same thing that he offered the woman at the well, and he says, take freely, drink, and live. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray this morning that you would make us to see our need for the living waters that are only found in the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray that you would give us drink to satisfy our parched and thirsty souls. We pray that you would forgive us for the many times that we have forsaken that invitation to ask that we might discover. We pray this morning that you would Reveal yourself to us in new and fresh ways as we come to the table. We pray that you would do that for us, that you would give us uh, your flesh as food and you would give us your blood as drink. Lord Jesus, we do pray that we would leave this place having drank deeply from the wells of salvation. We pray these things in your name. Amen.